I grew up in an era where accountability was hardcore. It was ruled with an iron fist. It was a stick, not a carrot. And in this era, I feel like it is a major challenge for anyone to be ultra direct, to be transparent in a respectful way, but holding people accountable. I like that fine line between culture and accountability, but am I always trying to improve at it? Yeah, because at the end of the day, you want people, you want a culture that's likable. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Have you been here before? I've never been here before. And I went to high school down the street. You're kidding me. I went to Pally. I've been all around here, but never in the coveted Kleiner Perkins. <laughs> I'm sure you've had board meetings on Sandhill. No, you know, I've had board meetings on Sandhill for sure. I've been to Sequoia and yeah, NEA okay. and others, but not Kleiner. Yeah, yeah, but you've been on Sandhill for your executive rounds. Absolutely, but I haven't traditionally been a startup guy. Yeah. As you may know from my background, or yeah. we'll talk about it. Yeah. But anytime I get Scott Jones as a reference, he's the man. That's a Jonesy. You mean that's, Jonesy? That's a good signal. How did you guys meet? I work with him at SAP. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's and he right. and I became boys from SAP. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. He's that's the amazing. man. And do your kids go to school around here yeah, too? Yeah. Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart. They did. Go, my son did go to Sacred Heart. Yeah. My daughter is graduating from high school right now. She graduates tomorrow. In You're fact, she me. just came home. And said it was her last day of school and she's done with high school. What's she doing today? How is she celebrating? She is hanging with her buddies. Going to go party. Going to go have some fun. She'll probably go to a darty. Yeah. <laughs> She'll <laughs> probably get her day that's party so on. That's so fun. And then she's going to school. Yeah. And she's going to school. Yeah. That's amazing. Is yeah. it weird raising the kids where you grew up? What's amazing is that it's over and that it's like this era of raising kids that I love so much is done. That's That's it. the part that's gnarly to me. Has it hit you? It's no. And you're married still. Yeah, happily so like, married. You're like, as of what, a month from now, but officially speaking tomorrow, an empty yeah. nester? Yes. Well, until she goes to school, but yes, correct. Like it's really sinking I in. I feel like I'm not an empty nester until the kids graduate from college. Yeah. You know what I mean? But technically empty nesting for college, yeah. I mean, it's my son's up at UW and she's going to go to Wisconsin. Wow. He plays football at UW. That's what I hear. Plays football is a relative term, by the way, because he's not getting any playing time. That's right. He's like a third string quarterback? Yes. Yeah? Exactly. He's a redshirt freshman and he's making it happen. Yeah. He's doing great, man. Yeah. It's cool. Have you started to figure out like where your time's going to go? Like, oh, have you man. Have you started planning? I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do. But I mean, I lead a physical lifestyle yeah. and that's important to me. Yeah. And I'm grinding trying to sell through a SaaS downturn. Yeah. So I'm busy. You know, I got plenty of things to do. Yeah. I'm not worried about my time. You're not. No. Do you no. think you'll spend more time working? Yes. Why? Because it's there and it's fun. Because it's like the obvious way for you to go spend more time. I'm not looking for things to do. Yeah, yeah. I got fucking plenty of things to do. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, I mean, I'm committed to hobbies and lifestyle pursuits and I'm not stressing about nothing to do or what I'm going to do. Yeah. I got plenty of things to do, yeah. but I just work is it's cool. You know, leadership is fun. It's like we're getting after it, making progress. And I like that. Do you think your kids would say that dad loves his job? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. But they also Scott Jones, your boy Jones, he gave me the greatest advice. Mm -hmm. His advice was, Early in his leadership career, mm. he put his career on hold for his kids and family. And he's an amazing father and an amazing dad, friend to his kids, mentor, all that kind of good stuff. And I took that advice and it was the greatest advice ever. What'd you do? Just active participation in their lifestyle. But you didn't take time away from work. No, no. I just managed my day to day so I could engage sincerely in coaching teams and being there present and, you know, work, if you're committed to, especially in leadership, you're committed to your people almost like you're committed to your kids. Yeah. So it takes time and it takes commitment. It's hardcore. So do would I think that they think I'm happy? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They know I'm a happy guy. Yeah. And that my 
combination of work-life balance is amazing. And hopefully it's an example for them of what they do in their careers. And when the kids were growing up and you're climbing the ranks of sales leadership, right? Yeah. You, you got, I think, kind of a relatively late start on being a leader in sales. Funny you say that. Do you disagree? 100% agree. 100% agree. Yeah. How old were you when you got your first management job? I can't remember, but it was totally intentional because when I got into- It was almost 20 years after you graduated. It was probably, was it that long? I don't think it was close, but my mindset was I loved being an individual contributor. And you were crushing it. And I crushed it and I was fun. I loved it. And I resisted the urge to go into management or- it wasn't called leadership in my mind at that point. Yeah. And I grew up in Silicon Valley type companies where it's not as much leadership as it is a grind. And you're trying to make the number and you're chasing your quota, your budget, whatever it is. And I always resisted it. And when I went to SAP, I went to SAP because I wanted to go to what I felt was the New York Yankees of enterprise software selling. At the time it was. At the time it was. Exactly right. Bill McDermott had started six months earlier. And when I got there, I had an amazing run as an individual contributor. I loved it. I resisted it because I wasn't inspired by leadership. The concept of leadership to me was managing people, managing things. And when I was growing up in sales, it wasn't like the modern SaaS world where you are an SDR, you get promoted into an inside seller, or you go into SDR leadership. My mindset was, I want to go make the most money I possibly can and have the best lifestyle. I didn't get inspired by leadership until I was exposed to guys like Bill and other amazing leaders at SAP. And then it inspired me on the leadership front. And then I got into it there. Yeah. So it was late. Do you mind me asking, did you grow up with money? No, I did not grow up with money, but I grew up around it. The reason I ask is because- You call like, me a trust funder? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. The only reason I'm asking is because generally those that did not grow up with a lot of money, yeah, want a lot of money, yeah, and those that did are generally irreverent to it, yeah, because they come from money. There's a safety net, yeah, there's a backstop there. That's why I asked. Well, like growing it's, it's up, a good question, yeah. Jubin, because to me, I grew up around money. We had money. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, you grew up we in a great, were, like, I grew up in a great spot, yeah. and it was all good. My dad was in leadership. He passed away many years ago, and it was all good. But I was always had a passion for winning, and working. I liked it. I just, when I wanted to make money, it was, I liked money and lifestyle because I, my lifestyle costs money and I like sure. to spend it and I like to make it and I like to win. So that's what inspired me. But it wasn't that I was like, oh my God, I grew up poor and I need to get money. Even though I always think in the back of my mind, money is important to provide stability for your family and options and choices in life. I have found, this is personally speaking, yeah. tell me if you relate that the process and act of making money feels so much better than having the money. Like going and getting it. Totally. Now, the irony is that I can't enjoy the achievement of actually doing it. However, getting to the other side of making money, I look back and I'm like, God, I had a lot more fun making the money totally. than I do having the money. Yeah. It's, do you like to win or do you like to win more? Or do you like to, or do you hate losing more? <laughs> but do you relate to that? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. It's the preparation for the event. I don't care if it's personal sports or if it's professional, it's the same way. Going back to your kids for a second, when I asked you about like uh, how they feel about you having fun at the job, one conversation I had with someone on my team recently was that she just had her second kid. Yeah. She's a working mom. Her husband works. She's just coming back to the workforce after having a kid. And I was asking her, how does it feel? Like, how does it feel leaving the kid at home and coming to the office and working. And she said, you know, on the one hand, I do feel guilty. And I think a lot of people tell me that I'm supposed to feel very guilty for leaving the kid at home. However, on the other hand, I really want my child to see what my work gives me and the fulfillment yeah. and satisfaction that I get from my work and that I work hard at striving to be better at something yeah. that means so much to me. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if maybe your kids see that in you sometimes. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. I think it's a great call. Setting that example, because if it's my son who is getting into, he grinds for football, he grinds for school. He does very well in school. His 
interest, the appreciation for the grind, to me, if you've got that in life, you are good. Because that's the biggest challenge. Life has ups and downs all the time. I lost my dad when I was young and it kind of snapped me too to figure out, you know, you got to get with it, so to speak. And to me, setting that example for your kids and how they look at it and seeing that, okay, the grind, if you're into the grind, the passion for the preparation, the details and the grind, the passion to go win and work hard, I feel like you solve a lot of problems in life. So yeah, I I think it's amazing for your kids to have that. How old were you when your dad passed away? I was uh, 29. How? What happened? We were skiing together. He died in an avalanche. You were with him? Yeah, we were powder skiing and I was in a different group than he was. There was three groups of four and the avalanche, I didn't see it until the smoke from the snow was billowing from the floor of this insanely, uh, literally the most amazing powder run I've ever taken on a snowboard in my life and saw the smoke billowing from the bottom of the bowl And then on the walkie-talkies or in the headsets, they let us know that two people were down. I didn't know it was my dad at the time. Got down to the spot and then dug pretty furiously for about 40 minutes. Got him out, but he had, they say he died as soon as the avalanche hit him. So it was a hardcore thing when it happened. Dude, I'm so sorry. Well, thank you, man. But it's, I celebrate it now. When you say it snapped you back into something, what did it snap you into? Or out of? It wasn't it snapped me out of something. It snapped me into making progress in my life and being committed to my career, being committed to making shit happen, quite frankly, because I was so committed to my lifestyle at that point. And I've always been a lifestyle guy, but that's what it did. Just got me focused. Man, did you take time off? The heaviest situation was calling my mom who my mom is. You made the call. I made the call. And when I called, I was with my brother and my brother and I were basically trying to figure out what we were going to do because at that point, my parents had a quintessential classic American marriage where they were committed to each other. It was amazing. It was a great lifestyle growing up, you know, as a family in loving, encouraging, supportive, positive. But my mom really relied on my dad. And she actually said something one time to me where she came home from a shopping trip one day from like Stanford Shopping Center, had a few bags in her hands. And I was literally talking to my dad in our living room. And my dad made a joke where he's like, oh my gosh, you know, honey, looks like a great day. And my mom goes, oh, Ted, you know, my dad's name was Ted as well. Don't worry, it was all on sale. And he goes, oh, this is great news. I'm going broke saving money. (laughs) And I thought that was so funny and so did my mom. And then she looked at us both and she said, Ted, I don't know what I'd ever do without you. And after my mom left the room, my dad looked at me and he goes, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, that's her complete commitment and reliance on my dad and was good and bad. And I didn't even think about that up to that point. My dad saying that was really put a light on. So when he passed and literally sitting in the lodge in Canada and trying to figure out what I'm going to do, I basically told my brother we could lose our mom in the phone call. She could have a heart attack on the phone call. Like she's, she's going to freak. And so I had to figure out what to do at that time, decided to call my mom's brother and two of our family's closest friends that lived near her. And, and go, I, tell and, him to go there. And I said, I'm going to call my mom in 15 minutes. Can you please get in the car and drive there? Because by the time you get there, I will be basically on or off the phone. And then I called my mom and I shared the news with her. And it was a heartbreaking conversation. It was insane. I, you know, but it was a challenge, a challenging situation for sure. Heavy situation for sure. But looking back on it, my dad at 60 years old, you know, like I said, I was 29. My brother's three years younger than me. He was heli skiing with his two sons, getting after it at 60. And he was the man and he was making it happen. And it just is, that's the way he went. How long did it take you to recover from that? And I'm not sure you ever fully recover. You never fully recover. You're totally right. 
Have you ever had a heavy situation like that with Not, a family member? Nothing close to what okay, you just great. described. Good news. Good news. I was heavily emotional in the 45 minutes I was digging him out. And I literally was, you dig snow for five minutes, you're crushed. It's hard physical labor, especially when you're doing it at top speed. And I literally did it for 40 minutes. And it was emotional at the time. It was a heavy thing. And I was, you know, crying and emotional. You know, you know, I wasn't freaking out, but I was focused to try to not knowing what I was going to get to. We had the, you know, we hit the prodders that go through the snow and we knew it was deep and we knew it was going to be a challenge to literally dig down levels to get to him. It was that big of an avalanche. But what's interesting, Jubin, is that the emotional side of it, I left it on the mountain for better, for worse, by the way. But it was like, it's on. It was just almost as if my dad was transitioning to me, like, you're the boss, you're the head of the family. Now it's time for you to take care of business. So that's what I mean by snap me into, you know, it wasn't snapping me out of anything because it's always been all good in my mind. It just, it was snapping me to be more focused and to get after it. And, yeah. and so do I ever get over it? No, you never get over it. You celebrate it and you appreciate it. And then you do the best you can to provide support for your family. Do you feel like going back to our original conversation around the empty nest and the way that you were so intentional about the father that you wanted to be growing up, do you feel like part of that intentionality comes from you just never know? You just 100%. never know. And you want to be present in your kid's life growing up. 100%. You know, I never really thought about it. It's just been a natural thing to me in Sure, you get examples of it from my own dad, from mentors, from your friends, from people that you admire. But I never spent a lot of time thinking about it. I just reacted to it. And now Mm -hmm. here I am, literally, my son's 20 and my daughter's 18. And 20 years later, you're like, okay, you know, it's done. Did you do the work? Did you set the example? It's, I feel like parenting, you never really have clarity. You never really feel like you've done it all. You're just, it's constant. You're just, it's almost like it requires grit. It's the grind. Mm. It's just making it happen. And that's where I feel like I'm at right now. When you were going to kids sports, you know, your son's football games and stuff. Sometimes those are, I don't know, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon. And you're a sales leader. Like you have like a big job and you bear the burden of responsibility of what that means for your family. You're now in leadership. So you owe it to others to be available. hundred percent. There must've been some overlap in those worlds of, you know what, if I am going to choose to be present and available to the kids, I also kind of need to be on standby. Yes. I can imagine you kind of on the sidelines Never. Taking the phone calls? Never. 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 How is that possible? That's not my move. And I wanted to make sure it was not my move. Of course, you have, sometimes you have to go away from the game or the practice or whatever to take a call or in another location, ideally out of sight from the kids or out of sight from other parents. But I just had to manage my time. Yeah. Manage and optimize your time. And you would keep some of that. I mean, it's only a couple hours. You would keep some of that space just sacred. Absolutely. Yeah. When you were growing up, what was conversation like for you at the dinner table? What did your mom and dad talk about? Was it achievement oriented? Would they ask you what you did at school? Like, give me a sense of what the Purcell dinner table was like growing up. My brother and I ate a lot of food, number one, and drank a lot of milk, (laughs) number number two. My parents were very nurturing and very supportive and, as I like to say, actively engaged. And- They were God-fearing people. My mom still is. My mom sang in the choir of an Episcopal church. My dad volunteered as the CFO of the church. (laughs) And their whole mindset was family is about sincere personal relationships. And my dad was an engineer and an analytical thinker, a math numbers guy, and not as much achievement oriented. He didn't push me. It's not that I don't, push my kids in looking at my dad's example or my mom's example, they were setting the right example in sincerity and authenticity and Mm. love. It wasn't achievement oriented, even though they were on me big time about my grades and about performance in school, which I wasn't great at. I was always trying to get busy outside of the classroom and get to work or go win something or go 
in usually extreme sports, you know, water or snow related, those were my passions at that age in ball sports too, football, basketball, and baseball, but they weren't driving achievement wise, especially in that era that was parents were kind of hardcore, a lot more hardcore than we are now, I feel like. But no, it wasn't achievement oriented. It was commitment to the things that matter the most, your relationships, your family, yourself. What was the first job you ever had? Busting tables. Here. Do you know where the BBC is yeah. down in El Camino? Yeah. My first job was busting tables. Actually, my first job was washing dishes. Then I bust tables, got promoted up to the front of the house. But I was always doing odd jobs, uh, mm. even though I had asthma as a kid and I had big time allergies. I was mowing lawns and trying to do you know yard work for my parents' friends to earn some money. But really, the first job was busting tables. How long were you an individual contributor at SAP for? Six years. Six years. Five or six years. I can't remember the exact number, but a long time. And you joined right after McDermott. Yes. What was it like during that time? How was that time? It for was you? amazing. I interviewed by chance. Bill was in the office and Bill came in and grilled me in an interview and it was amazing. And SAP at that time was really special. And it was amazing leadership. It was a transitional time in the business. It was still hardcore, large enterprise, platform, ERP selling. And my individual contributor experience was amazing. The culture in the company was awesome, set by, of course, not just Bill, but Bill was leading North America at the time. He wasn't even the head of global sales, let alone the CEO. But the example that people set, probably because it was a German company in a lot of ways, the German culture, the European culture was amazing. And the individual contributors, the sales culture. So as individual contributors, you were celebrated, you're held accountable, held accountable for sure. But the culture that we had of high performance and of support of one another, it was competitive, but people were supportive of one another and it was just a high social environment, highly competitive environment. People were really good at what they did all over the place. And it was an amazing part of my career and culture to be a part of. And you and Bill ended up building a relationship over time. We did. How? Yeah. And I love Bill McDermott. <laughs> Who doesn't? I love that guy. Yeah. I say, hey, I'll be disappointed if he doesn't run for president. A hundred percent agree. I'm actually pissed that he's at service now and not running for president. It's literally a shame. It is a disservice to the country, by the way. Seriously. Yeah. I'm, he, I'm he's like, amazing. We're smiling, he, but I'm being dead serious. I'm being dead serious too. <laughs> he, he's funny because he's such a classic and he's almost a caricature of himself in a way. I know. He's bigger than life. He's committed passionately to what he believes in and that passion it fed me. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, you can't help but be inspired by it and want to be around it. And in that era, we had a lot of great leaders at SAP. It wasn't just Bill. We had a lot of great leaders. And Bill developed a lot of people into even better leaders and better people. But the whole idea at that time was you want to perform and you want to be successful. And Bill loves winners and he loves people that win. And he likes good people that go about it the right way. And he knows the difference. He's a very authentic and sincere guy. Yeah, you know, he's got a very calculated talk track and how he talks about his background and career, but it's on point. And he is sincere about it. And mm -hmm. he's a good guy, genuinely a good guy. And his platform for sure resonates politically. And I saw the interview that you guys did together Great interview. Obviously, it impacted you and it affected you in a yeah. heavy way, which was cool. But he's the real deal. And that culture he created at that time, we were all fully behind it. And it was, we saw his consistency to messaging and how every quarter he would tell us this, literally the same thing. And at first you're thinking he's telling us something we already know, but he was thinking about the scale and he was thinking about how more people would get added every quarter. But really what he was thinking about is the more times you hear something, the more it just cements in your mind. And that commitment to culture is commitment to corporate messaging, to the culture that he wanted around winning and passion. 
and getting into the details and making shit happen, he was the best at it. And so it, it made a great corporate culture. And the relationship for you all started when you were absolutely, when you were winning, when you were yeah. crushing it. Well, crushing it, I mean, you know, you have ups and downs, but I was always successful yeah. as an individual contributor and as a leader at SAP. So it was all good. Yeah. But still like draw me the bridge between how at the time, like you, I see. Yes. Ted Purcell. Yes. And like, fine. No, he's Bill was a man of the frontline people. This is what's cool is I, I think we- Like you would go we, to meetings with him? Yeah, absolutely. That's how you got to know each other. That's how we got to know each other. Yeah. Like, and, cause you were managing this, the Bay Area accounts. Yes. And those were yes. big accounts for the business. Yes. And Bill would come. Yes. Get engaged. And probably you go to, knew the executives at absolutely. these big companies. Absolutely. And he would Abs come with you. Yes. And we had a number of opportunities to build relationship over president's clubs, corporate events, you know, his summer sales meetings, the annual kickoffs, all that kind of stuff. And it was the more times we interacted, the more times we built, uh, had opportunity to build relationship. And we did. He had so many, I mean, everyone's got many bill stories. What's your favorite? <laughs> There's so many. What's uh, your favorite great, rolling around great, the Bay Area with Bill story? You know, it's the guy, he'll hop off a plane and he looks amazing. You know, it's <laughs> just the guy comes down. He looks like he's born. He, he's central casting for a lot of things, not just the presidency, but he could have been Clark Gable for God's sake. You know, and everyone agrees. <laughs> I mean, he was so good with customers. He's an excellent salesperson. He's an excellent listener. And he's very quick and very sharp-minded. And for a guy that knows so many industries and so many different businesses, I mean, we would go see oil and gas customers in the morning, go see high-tech companies middle of the day, and at night we'd be at a CPG company. And his talk track was on point with every single company. One time, I'm not going to name the company mm. or the people involved, but we were trying to shake loose an opportunity that was heavily competitive against Oracle at the mm. time. And this is a wall-to-wall -wall competitive Oracle red, as we like to call it, at the blue SAP house account. And we were at the top of the house at this account. And Bill came in. We'd had a number of different engagements trying to dislodge this competitor. And it had been going on for a long time. By the way, it had been going on a long time before me at SAP. And we were in this meeting and the individual is saying, well, this is going to be really challenging for me to overrule a certain individual that ran IT at the time, the CIO at the time. And we were trying to really pinpoint the areas that we could help with and the reason why they should bring us in and augment their environment with us. And Bill looked at this individual and was totally positive, but trying to showcase, you know, hey, this is the resistance that you're getting. This is not good for you. And you should really think about bringing us in because we can really help. And we have all these reasons why. And he said, if this was me and I was getting this kind of pushback within SAP, I can assure you that this person would have a sign out front of this building and the sign would say resource for hire. <laughs> and I started laughing so hard because I was Partially uncomfortable, but partially stoked because I can't believe he had the backbone and the audacity to say that. It was oh amazing. Oh my gosh. And we ended up getting the deal done, which is amazing. And as we're walking out of the meeting, we're down on the streets, we're getting into the car. Bill looked at me and says, wasn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> and did you go into leadership at SAP? Yes. And what was the catalyst? What finally tipped you over? Inspiration by a couple of leaders at the time that I thought were amazing and that led, had a people-based platform. And I saw how authenticity and sincerity and likability and all those great buzzwords, but legitimate terms that I grew up with, how when you invested in people in a real way, it created a winning culture. And it was not only good for people, it was good for business. And, it, and I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Mm. And this is what I'm interested in. And that's what set me on my way. Did it take you a while to get comfortable in your own skin as a leader? Meaning like- Absolutely. You know what, I'm, you know what I mean? For sure. Like when I sit For across sure. from you now, I feel like I'm getting sure. the very sincere version of you. Yeah. And I have a sneaky suspicion that if 
every room in a proverbial house was a different facet of Tad's life. Yeah. Maybe the office is your work and the kitchen is, you know, where your friends are and yes. the family room is, it, it's the same, Ted. Totally. Today. 100%. I, I wonder, was it always that way or did it yeah. take a while to get to the point where you felt like you could be this guy in a professional setting? You're always, I feel like, trying to mold your leadership agenda and what your style is and we're always trying to learn. I and mean, this is the beauty about what we do. I feel like it's an amazing challenge in life and it's fun, but that doesn't mean you're amazing at it out of the gates or that you're perfect. And I'm always trying to fine tune based on the environment that I'm in. It's not that it's a different person or it's a different persona. It's just a different style, especially as I get older and different aged People in organizations have different upbringings and styles themselves in what works and what doesn't work. My mindset has always been authenticity and sincerity wins. I'm always trying to get better at listening, but that's obviously our best trait, I feel like, as professional executives, whether you're revenue or otherwise. And I'm always trying to fine tune it. You're right in the different rooms of the house. I'm the same. But if anything, my challenge has been, how do I come across even more polished? How do I get in more into the details at the right place in the right time? And how do I lead from an authentic but credible, detailed-oriented place where I know the business, I know the people, and I can make an impact? Right. And I feel like I'm always trying to fine-tune that. Right. Like the balance between everybody wants to be friends with you, but at some point, you got to hold those people accountable yes. as well. As well, right? Yeah, and absolutely. Like, and, and by the way, you want to be friends with everybody. Like you want to be friends with your team, right? Yeah, you do for sure. I mean, I, I think it's it, has it's, that been a struggle for you? Like absolutely. the accountability thing. Absolutely. What I would say is, I believe it can be done, and I believe that you know. Again, when I was at SAP, we had a very social culture at SAP, so you were friends with people if you had the right whatever it is, moxie, personality, style, commitment to winning, whatever it is, you would have environments where you were socializing with people. And the best people, the most likable people, set an amazing example in my mind. But the combination of likability and performance was the greatest of all worlds. Just because you're likable or you want to be liked doesn't mean you're committed to success and professionalism. And I'm always committed to my lifestyle. And I feel like that's my biggest struggle in life, the tug of war of getting outside and getting into the water or the snow or with friends and family at the same time providing leadership and being supportive to teams and the great things that come from leading teams. All of that is a constant challenge. But accountability is almost like, let's not waste each other's time. We need to be the best we can be. We need to succeed. We need to win. But accountability, especially now, because in the modern era, I feel like accountability, I grew up in an era where accountability was hardcore. It was ruled with an iron fist. It was a stick, not a carrot. And in this era, I feel like it is a major challenge for anyone to be ultra direct to be transparent in a respectful way, but holding people accountable. I like that fine line between culture and accountability, but am I always trying to improve at it? Yeah, because at the end of the day, you want people, you want a culture that's likable yeah. and authentic and sincere because guess what? What you have inside of a culture gets exposed to customers and that's the way customers want to be treated. And they want to, customers, partners, employees, everyone treated the same way. They all want to work with people that they like but the people that provide value, whether you're selling to somebody, supporting somebody, partnering with somebody, or working for somebody, or with somebody, or somebody's working for you. So I believe that that's a constant effort to optimize. Yeah. And yeah, it's a challenge for everybody, I feel like. Yeah, like one thing that comes to mind with you, and tell me if you think this is wrong, I think folks have over-optimized for lifestyle in today's yeah. day and age. For sure. And 100%. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like uh, younger Ted benefited yeah. tremendously from having a Bay Area patch where he lived in the Bay Area. He got FaceTime yes. with Bill McDermott and senior executives, and he learned through osmosis from other high achievers at his organization. Yes. Now, I guarantee you, you have people on your team 
who could benefit greatly from all of that, but want to work remote. They want to work from Absolutely. the snow. They want to work Absolutely. from Utah. And on the one hand, I imagine you're deeply empathetic to that because you're like, yeah, I get it. Yes. I want that too. You're also trying to do that. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, but, absolutely. Then, but then on the other hand, it is objectively not better for the organization. 100%. And I think we have completely lost the script on this idea Agreed. that organizations are better not together. And I think that's why leaders are having a very hard time. And I mean all leaders. Yeah. Getting people yeah. to come back into the office. I'm using yeah. the office as a proxy 100%. for commitment. Totally. But I think you know well what I'm said. saying. Commitment and mindshare, 100% yeah. physically or otherwise. Yeah. I totally agree. This is the biggest challenge that faces us as leaders right now. The remote first mindset, We're ha- especially in California. I just got back from a trip across Asia. I was in Singapore, Hong Kong, Tokyo. People are getting back in the office outside of the US, let alone outside of California, especially acute in California. And People in the modern era don't want to know just what to do. They want to know why to do it. They want to be inspired as to why. And how you build that in a culture-friendly context and lead by example, at least that's my take on it, is I know that people want to make money to improve their lives. Don't get me wrong. People want to climb the corporate ladder. They want to be committed to their careers and do things. They want to achieve greatness. But at the end of the day, I think the best high-performing businesses have great cultures. I'm not saying it's necessarily culture first, because to your point on accountability, you have to know what it takes to win. The ability to not mind the grind and be inspired by the grind. By the way, I'm inspired by the grind in my personal lifestyle, You know, whether it's trying to ski or snowboard big mountains or surf big waves. Like I get inspired by the grind of what it takes to prep for that kind of thing. And creating a culture which is the same embodiment of that commitment is hard. It's not easy, especially mm-hmm. in the modern era. So you said it right. Commitment to mind share. It's not just physical, but are you present? Are you visually present? Are you verbally present? Are you actively engaged and listening? This challenges everybody right now. It's mm-hmm. crazy. And you know, two years ago when there was an amazing job market, it was if you put too much pressure on the wrong spots or the right spots, depending on how you looked at it, guess what? There's another job right down the street so I can quit. Yeah. I'll vote by quitting. Yeah. And this was a major challenge in the last run-up of our industry, for sure. Yeah. And quitting was as easy as logging out of your SSO provider, closing out Zoom, and then going into somebody else's. Yeah. When when you're interviewing people, do you have any signals of somebody that wants to achieve greatness or that enjoys the process of achieving greatness? Like, are there things that you look for? Things that are easy tells for you? Active listening. I could tell, I feel like from personal versus professional, I feel like somebody that likes to get after it and has real moxie is somebody that I personally can align with. And I usually double click on that. Like, what does the aggressive mentality commitment to the details really mean for somebody. I interviewed somebody one time that ended up working for me in another company I forgot about. And one of my friends that heard about this story reminds me of it from time to time where I interviewed a guy. I asked them why they wanted to be in sales or relatively junior in their career. And this individual said, I really like people. So I think I'll be great at sales. I said, well, that's cool. Do you think you would love people if they hate you? They don't trust you. They don't respond to you and they don't want to talk to you. How do you like people then? <laughs> and this guy had no response. He actually didn't get the job. He ended up working for me at a later time and is amazing at what he does now. So plenty of examples where it didn't work. But I mean, to me, my interview style is based on authenticity and sincerity. And of course, looking back at somebody's background and what they've done and what they do, but really how they approach their work and even personal, because it's so intertwined to me in this day and age, like, mm. you're working and living one and the same. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for. Yeah. One interview that I've always wanted to do, like probably not even allowed to do it these days, but one interview that I've always wanted to do is if someone tells me that they like to work out as one of their personal hobbies, just go to a workout class with them. Or better yet, <laughs> if they go to a specific set of instructors at like Barry's or something, go literally back channel their instructors. I have thought about that. Great idea. Note to self. I, I have never thought, thought of that. I have never thought. It's I think a great about call. that all the time. All, all the time. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, well, every time crazy. I do a workout class, I think, man, 
these instructors yes. know a lot about these people. Yes, you're right. <laughs> it's a great call. Anyway, I got it. Yeah. I, 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 are they lollygagging? Do they really commit to it? Do they have that look in their eye do where they, they really want to get after when it When the countdown not? starts from seven to zero, yes. do they stop at five? Yes, totally. Uh, anyway, I, maybe, I need to get a, maybe I need to get a life. No, um, you don't. They agree. One thing sitting with you here is why didn't you try and go to earlier stage startups? And can I tell you why? Not that I think everybody's yes. suited for that. And I think yes. there's some people that are better at process yes. and scale totally and others that are better for the creation yes the zero to one rather than yes. the 10 to 20 yes and the prerequisite a big filter for me is do you have the energy do you have the energy and i don't think you've ever been accused of a lack of energy i certainly yes. haven't that energy harnessed and applied that wasn't it oh i totally agree i feel like you like know it's almost like you're a startup guy stuck at big companies totally 100 percent. by the way you're not the first that, person to say that okay i don't know i appreciate that that's maximum respect yeah i, I mean that actually I, very nice like complimentary i thank you so much i totally agree yeah well, i was a smaller company guy i don't want to say startup guy but early in my career as an individual contributor I was a smaller company guy. Then I went to SAP and I got the flavor of scale. And when you're at scale, don't get me wrong, they're all hard. In order to be highly successful in big companies, people that are really good at it, they're getting after it. You don't just need that energy at small companies. But I liked scale problems. And even when I went to my current company, to Telium, we we're you know, a little less than 180 million at the time. And Latter stage for sure, so not early stage, but product market fit is in constant evolution. You may think you've got pole position in your place in the market at one point, but in the next period of time, it could completely change based on other entrants to the market, the change of the category, the merging of categories. So for some reason, I like the challenges at scale. I feel like when you get more into latter stage, meaning more than 75 million, you've got at least some element of product market fit. You've established at least some element of ideal yeah. customer profile. It's constantly in evolution. And I like that. I just like that challenge. And I like the point at which you've got some processes that are really startup oriented that just need a level of professionalism perhaps yeah. and just to be a little bit tighter. I've always really admired the startup earlier stage concept for sure. I was in one company, it was about 20 million. Mm -hmm. um, so that's early stage yeah. for sure. Israeli company, by the way. Yeah. And lots of stories behind that for sure that we could talk about. But that early stage just wasn't what I really loved. What startup was that? Uh, Clarison. That was after SAP. Right after SAP. So I went literally jumped off the deep end. I went from SAP to a $20 million early stage, we had 20 million, but at that point it was an MRR based company. It was, you know, monthly contracts and it was an Israeli company at that. I knew very little about Israeli cultures. I just loved the CEO and I said, I'm in. Yeah. You, you emphasize the Israeli culture. Tell me more about yes. that. The Israeli culture. I freaking love it. Yeah. And it's highly passionate. It's highly intellectually curious. First day in the job, I walk into the meeting room. Um, the CEO hadn't told the individual that I was coming to the company and replacing him until the hour before I showed up into the office and they were still in the meeting room in his office arguing about it. And I didn't know what was going on. I was right off of SAP. I'm coming in like thinking, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. This guy is a great, you know, he's a great guy. It's a great category. They can, they really need my help. They have some great enterprise companies as customers, but there's not a lot of understanding of the customer journey. And a lot of things I was just psyched, got in the office, boom, they're screaming at each other. I looked at him, I came in, I'm like, hey, is everything cool? Like, this is a $20 million company, duly based in San Mateo at the time in Israel. And he looks at me and he goes, that wasn't an argument. No, 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 that's not an argument. That's an Israeli conversation. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, like yeah. an Israeli conversation. And that was a full-blooded brawl is what I saw. You know, not fisticuffs, but you know, just in, what I learned is that commitment to intellectual curiosity and debate, that's a sign of respect. So it really is, it's the opposite of California culture. And I loved it. I was like the aggressiveness around debating what you believe in and why, even keeping yourself humble and open to change because they do. 
I feel like in Israeli corporate cultures, they're open to change, but they need to be convinced of it and they'll fight tooth and nail to make sure the person they're debating with really believes it and isn't just saying it, but really believes it sincerely and understands the point of view from the detailed oriented perspective. And that's what my work experience was at this Israeli company, highly passionate, humble, deeply curious. And the level of debate that goes on helps in my opinion, create a lot of clarity. So I loved it. Did you feel like a fish out of water without the the resources, brand, everything that- No, because at big companies, it's an excellent question. It's the first thing you go to for a small company person that is coming from a big company. I feel like in big companies, you have good and bad resources and you still have to weed through those resources to find the right people. So even though you have lots of people and lots of resources, you can have the wrong ones. And weeding through that to get down to your small trusted team of people that makes things happen, I feel like is what you do in a big company to be highly successful anyways. So I didn't experience that. When I got to a smaller company, I was like, okay, cool. We're going to go make this happen. We're going to hire the right people. We're going to create the right mold in how we're going to go after the business and what we need now. At that point, we were in massive change. We are going from an MRR-based company to annual commitments, and it was early-stage SaaS. Not early, early-stage SaaS like Salesforce, but you know, early-stage, especially industry-based categories for once that started in SaaS. And the change needed to happen, but I was inspired by it. Did you pull it off? Like, How do you think you did in retrospect? I think we did very well. We didn't get it to an interesting category. Our investor at the time said, you know, you can't out execute a bad category. And that was really what we were up against is it was a SaaS enablement of a services project management based category. And we pulled a lot of things off. We didn't pull everything off and we never had a meaningful exit. So it wasn't, you know, in that regard, successful. Yeah, that seems fair. So then you went to Marketo. Yeah. Which was a, well, that was already a big company at that point, right? We were public. You're, you're an SVP at Marketo. Yeah, yeah like we're you were public. Big, you're back. Yes. Back well, to your roots. It was still only worth a billion dollars at that time, a little north of a billion dollars. So it wasn't like SAP style. But I liked that stage because I, at that point, I had never run a commercial or let's call it a mid market volume and velocity business at scale. I grew up in the enterprise, large enterprise relationship oriented platform selling. And I wanted to get experience in running a volume velocity business at scale. And that's why I went to Marketo. And at that point, Marketo was not sexy. There were people that were good people that had been there for a long time that were leaving because they were just done. And it was had its own set of challenges. Can you give me the 30 seconds? Like, what does Telium do? We're a customer data platform company for a large enterprise. And you've been there for four, four years? Four years. Four years. Yes. Coming up on four years, about three and a half. Wow. And yeah. you mentioned earlier, I can't remember what the word you used, but like basically it's hard right now. Can you share more on it? Because this is one of the most topical conversations that I have. Let's put like the remote thing actually in this bucket too. Yeah. Of we're living in a reality today where... Unlimited licenses don't exist anymore. You're getting inspected at basically every twist and turn. Yep. A lot of companies that thought they were must-haves are nice-to-haves. Yep, 100%. People are not making money like they used to. They have a lot of options on things that they can go do. Yep. Pressure is extraordinarily high on organizations to extend their runway, raise money if they have to, which you cannot raise in any meaningful way, which then you start have to think about like a down round. So the pressure cooker is happening at an organizational level. Yeah. Then on an individual level, as a leader, there is a level of pressure that exists there. And then I think there is an even more incremental pressure that exists on the sales leader because it's the revenue that's under pressure, right? And so the sales leader's seat feels probably as hot as it ever has. That's the conversation that I'm having with most people today. It's the right conversation. It's the reality like what we're up against. Hard. In this environment, for everything you just said, let's put that aside because you're right. When I say it's hard, it's hard all over. But is that bad? No, it's not bad. 
it's just finding the right people, hiring the right people, getting them coached up, getting them enabled, getting them optimized, getting them consistently productive, all those things. It's a challenge for sure. And in this buying environment, yeah, it's hard for sure relative to what we've been through the last handful of years, but it's not anything different than I feel like we've been, I've been in this business a long time now. It's just, to me, it's, it is what it is. I don't think that this time is much different than it was 10 years ago when there weren't as many companies in categories. There weren't as much companies that received some element of funding to have so many competitors or entrants into small specific categories. But, you know, the consistency of productivity across large scale organizations and to keep inspiring people while holding them accountable, like it is a grind for sure. But yeah. that part of the business actually inspires me and I love it, but it's not easy. It's definitely hard. But the question is, do you like that? Do you get after the grind aspect of how hard it is? And that's what my leadership team and what my what I'm looking at and how we approach it and getting people around you that look at things the same way. This is the most inspirational part of this career in this business because it still grows big time. I mean, you go talk to friends of yours that are in other businesses, doesn't have as much of a pressure cooker because to them, services-based businesses, real estate businesses, growing double digits, even if it's low double digits is amazing. In our business, if we're not growing at least 50%, we're not optimized. And so, yeah, it's a challenge, but- to me, I, I love it. Is there uh, any adjustments that you've had to make from the way that you've led over the last couple of years to when you lead in a, I guess, a downturn in the market? I would say as opposed to the downturn, it was just be about modern coaching mm. and leading is about the why, not as much the what. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest change for me. And Can you explain that? Yeah, I would say that There is a real resistance just in terms of how especially top performers have brought their experience to a given company or role in what they think they think is needed in order to be successful. And in smaller companies especially, now larger companies, totally different discussion altogether. Smaller stage companies, things are changing constantly. And what is really important to getting people to truly believe in what they believe. And it's not just do this or do that. I'm not saying you communicate it that way in an enablement context, but getting people to believe in why and getting people to understand why things are what they are or why we are in business or why we provide the value that we provide to me gets it to a religious level where people are so committed and they believe so sincerely that it carries over into how they perform their jobs and who they talk with. And that to me is the biggest transition. Now, of course, in this market, in this kind of an environment where it's not as easy to sell software, not as many people are buying or winning, the inspirational aspect of it comes into play in helping to inspire people of the why and why it's important for them or why it's important that we as a team come together to win and how we come together to win. That becomes the main job because the winning is not as evenly spread. You need plenty of winners. Even at this point, you know, most companies are right-sizing the employee base based on the reality of the market. So you still have people winning, still have great examples of people to hold up and show what is the shining example of what you need to do in order to be successful at a given company. But this is the biggest thing for me is the what and the why. Yeah, I think that's well said. What's the toughest feedback anyone's ever given to you? The one that like hit you right in the gut that you knew was true, that you almost became argumentative about because you knew it was so true. Oh man, I've always felt like I needed to get even more in the details to understand things at a real detail-oriented level. And I think early in my career, being in operational details to really understand what moves the business and 
the feedback to me in order to bring my leadership agenda to the next level was always get into the operational details of the business so you know the details of the business. And that comes from me being rooted in a relationship-oriented selling background. And in my back in my early stages of my career, relationship-oriented selling was what I grew up on. And the constructively yet critical feedback that I wasn't in the details, that's usually what hit home most for me because I was so sincerely committed to being in the details. And I felt like the best leaders were, again, the ones that combined the best of culture and the best of operational detail and rigor. And yeah, that's what I'm always striving to be. What's something that most people think about you that you would not agree with? Lifestyle oriented only. Meaning you're surfing and snowboarding all the time. Not all the time, but that's what I am. I know I look like it. I know I sound like it. I know that I aspire in a lot of ways to do it. But I'm, and you, you say know, it. I'm a content rich guy, you know, and I want to be that way. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. I say it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you don't take it as a slight. No, not at all. Yeah. Where do you get your best ideas? Meaning what environment do I have to be yeah. in to ideas to come about? Yeah. I feel like they come at all times. I do. I, in fact, I use a day timer and an old oh, school day timer. I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what that is. This dated me so big time. I'm going to show you what it is because okay. I brought it with me. <laughs> but it's literally a note, almost a billfold notepad. And ideas come to me all the time. At night, when I'm physically active, when I'm in meetings. In fact, ADD, I definitely have a pinch of ADD for sure. So ideas are coming to me all the time. So I'm constantly writing things down to bring them to re, try to bring those ideas back to life. So you have a day planner, yeah. which is a fancy name for a notebook. Yes. And, yes. Um, and you just take notes as they come to you. Yeah. What else do you do? Do you have any other, like uh, any other routines or habits that are things that you do? You know, I try to limit fire drills and keep things consistent. So I really have just a consistent operating regimen myself what is and it? how I go about it. But I have to say that I'm trying to be more of a morning person where I get physical activity and in the morning so I can hit my day a little bit harder from that respect. But I haven't been able to make that transition because every day, especially on a global schedule, is constantly changing. So I don't have a consistent operating yeah. regimen right now. I'm constantly trying to find one and trying to make it consistent and clean. But on my global schedule, I could wake up in the morning and need things that need to be addressed immediately in Europe. At night when I'm, or in late afternoon, same thing is happening in Asia. These jobs that we have are always on jobs. So there's no consistency to any day. I'm just trying to limit the number of fire drills so I can keep separation in my schedule so I can get the right work done at the right time and prioritize things in my life at the same time. Totally. And it's hard. It is hard. I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you. Like, I, yeah, it, I appreciate you having like, me this in. This is so fun. If you can imagine, you it's good been at an it. hour and 15 minutes. Uh, it's been an hour and 15 minutes. Yes. Jeez, it feels like it's been 15 I know, minutes. I know, I know, that's because you're, that's because you're good at this. I, uh, you, you have a career in this among other things. <laughs> oh man. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I love this, but I don't know. Sometimes I just think there's more. Yeah. Well, there is to, you know, to everything, man. You know, like, uh, yes. like, yeah, it'd be fun to be a podcaster full time as a career, but like, uh, I don't know. I think I have more. What does that mean? I don't know, like when you were in IC at SAP. Yeah. Maybe I'll bring I'll bring it back to me. Like when I was a BDR, yep. started out my career inside so sales I. rep. So did I. Cold calling. Amazing. The best. The best. And the I, best. I sucked at first and then I got really good. Uh, yeah. And everyone was like, you might have a career in this. And then I became, you know, like I was very young. I became a BDR manager. Everyone's like, God, you should be an inside sales leader. Like, you, you might have a career in this. You might be really good. And then I became a mid market rep, and then a mid market leader, yeah. and then enterprise rep. Good for you, and then enterprise leader. And every single one of those, I heard, you'd be really good at this, you know? And part of me, it's like the anxious overachiever in me, hears that and says, Boy, I hope that's a footnote. Because sometimes I'm like, Well, when do I know that this is the thing? This is the calling. I feel like sometimes if I had settled on the external validation 
telling me that that job was the right one, well, maybe I wouldn't have pushed myself to kind of achieve my potential to fulfill what I think like real greatness could be in me. Did you ever have a crossroads in your career? Where I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Maybe not not know, but be challenged with the decision. I think coming to Kleiner was a big one, honestly, because um, the path for me was very linear in the sense that once I had gotten the final stamp of leading an enterprise business, I'd seen all phases of a go-to-market, and I felt very competent, even though I was young, to be able to lead that full function. And so that was a very clear next step. When I came here, there was no job description and I've, I was an IC. Yeah. I was an IC. I was yeah, leading people when I was 22 years old. And yeah. I basically intermittently, except for a few exceptions, didn't yeah. stop until I came here. Yeah. And then I became an IC in venture. Yeah. You cool. know, in a job that a lot of people said, I don't know what this is. Yeah. I don't understand this. Yeah. And, operating partner in yeah, a venture and, firm. And oh, by the way, yeah. you know, you're going to lose your fastball. And it's going to be very difficult for you to go back in because most of the people that have your job are done with their career. Right. And so they right. have 30 years of experience to draw yeah. on and they have nothing yeah. left ahead of them. That's why they do these jobs. Interesting. And so I think that was a big crossroad for me. Those are always the biggest challenge. Yeah, I think I've had several. I think now I am asking myself a lot, what is it that gives me the energy? That's what I continue to seek is what gives me the energy. Totally. Where can I live in a spot, in a zone that I feel deeply energetic about the work that I'm doing? Yeah. Because um, I have a feeling that I'm probably going to work forever. I don't think I'm going to be a retirement guy. Yeah. Like I don't think I'm working until I'm 65 and then I'm going to go hang up the cleats. Yeah. I do think I want to work in some capacity forever. Yeah. Growing up at my dinner table, it was always very work oriented. However, the way that work was talked about was in somewhat of a begrudging way. It wasn't fun. I could feel it. I think there was an intellectual stimulus that my parents got being in, you know, being scientists that was deeply meaningful for them. And like, there's obviously like fulfillment that comes from doing drug discovery that's helping humanity. There's like obviously something there, but I think For the day to day of it was a real grind. I remember always thinking I never want to feel that way. I remember always thinking that the work that I do, I want to work hard and I want to work a lot. And I thought the only way that I could do that for call it like 70 years, 60, 70 years is doing something that I really love. And so I try and couch that love in the feeling that I get of energy. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that you say, you know, you lose your fastball by going into your type of a position. Cause yeah. I would see you not losing your fastball because you would step in to want to add so much value to these companies that need your kind of help and guidance Yeah, in whatever capacity it is, even structurally process wise, leadership wise, but going to help people get shit done. Yeah. I mean, this no, I, is, I completely agree. This and is I, like, I can't imagine it not being your fastball. No, it's pretty cool. And I'll tell you, I think a lot of the things that I'm seeing today are actually more emotional and endurance battles, yeah. not tactical battles. Yes. And I think for me, I think the perspective that you gain being somewhere like Kleiner Perkins and working yeah. with so many startups is yeah. you just gain perspective. Yeah. You gain perspective on what good looks like, what bad looks like. You gain perspective For on sure. how f***ing hard this is. Yeah, totally. It is so 100%. hard. And Absolutely. I've learned, obviously, through the podcast, Absolutely. but also our portfolio, the best companies all go through really, really hard times. Absolutely. And I think if you have a limited set of experiences, you don't actually understand that even the Figmas and the Octas, and you pick your great company, yeah. went through hell totally. at different periods of time. Yes. And that hell was more sustained than people remember it being. It was quarters. Absolutely. Maybe years. Yes. Maybe years. Absolutely. Every good company goes through it. Exactly. And totally so, agree. And if you love it, it's great. Exactly. But, but I've learned, great. I've seen that now. And so it helps me with perspective. You know, it's hard when you hear about all your friends in Silicon Valley that are killing it, you know, and you don't feel like you're killing it. But deep down, they're not really killing it either. You know, like it's just kind of this thing. <laughs> that's anywhere. It's human that, nature. That that's exists not just the in this place. Yeah, um, it does. But I think it's anywhere. Anyway, it's and human so nature. I, I learned perspective there. And I think that perspective gives me endurance. You know, the thing that I always got hung up on, though, because stop talking about me, was just that I always felt like going back to what I could be, I always felt like I could be more than a sales leader. Yeah. I always felt like sales totally. was a tool. 
it was an avenue yeah. for me to grow up in leadership yeah. and cut my teeth into yeah. how to lead people. And I thought it was a very core competency you. to a business. Yeah. But I never thought that course. that was the end all be all for yeah. me. I always found myself thinking, God, I need more of a broader horizon across company building. Yes. Totally. You know? Like I need to Absolutely. Like, especially these tech companies. Yes. Like, we can say what we want. These are product companies. Yeah. These are product companies. Yes. And so, you know, I 100%. wanted to see the way that the sausage was made kind of across the board. And I think that ultimately, hopefully, will give me more perspective down the line. I can imagine it would, but you being an individual contributor, like you were talking about, yeah, versus being a leader, versus being a leader in small companies, maybe being a CEO. Leadership is constantly changing and evolving, but being a great individual contributor is a very admirable thing, in my opinion. Yeah. That was one thing I learned at SAP. I don't care what it is that you do as long as you're great at it. It doesn't mean you have to get promoted. It doesn't mean you have to have a VP title or more. It's that you're really good at what you do. I don't care if you're flipping pancakes. I don't care if you're doing the yard work. Whatever it is, you do it freaking well. Yeah, I agree with and you. And I can be, I you know, that performance-based mindset, I don't know if you got it from your parents as scientists. My dad was an engineer, like I was talking about. Mm. He was really good at what he did. But winning in teams, like revenue teams do, almost like sports teams, that's not what I grew up with, nor is what he lived in his corporate work life. He was a civil engineer at the end of the day. So anyways, I think you'd be amazing at building audiences and communities beyond, you know, your podcast. It's good stuff. I appreciate it, man. I really appreciate you coming and spending time. I could literally talk to you for hours and hopefully over a beer sometime. Absolutely. Um, Thank you, Mutual, man. Thank uh, you so much. I concluded all these things the same way. The first is, are there any key roles in your organization that you're trying to fill? Anything that you want to shout out? By the way, the answer these days might be no. (laughs) I don't know. Anything on the hiring front? We are constantly hiring people and evaluating people. We actually have a leader for customer success open within North America right now. We're constantly looking for great people and we're constantly hiring. We're hiring in a measured way right now for sure. But the key role for us, we're pretty much tight as a team. Customer success in North America, this is a really important role we're trying to fill right now. Good. Last one, and I'm going to give you a change up on this, but when you hear the word grit, who do you think of? Who do I think of? Ronnie Lott. Who is that and why? Ronnie Lott, to me, I was talking about him last night with a guy, he's my favorite sports football player of all time, sports figure of all time. And when I think of hardcore grit, the guy broke his finger during a major football game and told him to cut it off because he wanted to get back and win so badly. To me, he personifies grit as well as anyone. He's the greatest defensive back, in my opinion, the history of the NFL, played for the San Francisco 49ers. And when I was a kid, he was my favorite football player. Ted, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it, man. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.